Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hello, and welcome to a new season of Telling Everybody Everything. It's been a busy week in the Ryan Kutstra household. I'm filming a brand new series, Out of Order, for Comedy Central, hosted by the formidable Rosie Jones, Judy Love, of whom I am a massive fan, is a team captain, I'm a team captain, and we've already filmed a bunch of episodes. We're taking a little break this week, but if you listen to the podcast on time and you want to come and see a live recording in London, we film at BBC White City. I think we start again in early November. We're taking a little bit of time off for half term because when you have two team captains who are moms, I mean, maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know. The show is very very diverse, very progressive. Obviously, it is hosted by a lesbian with cerebral palsy, but she's also, I mean, how do I describe? It's the kind of event television, almost a little celeb juice vibes where it's chaos and you just don't know what's going to happen. And I feel like it's going to be such a watchable show. The audiences is, the audiences is that we've had so far have been loving it. So Get tickets if you can. They're free, and we'd love to see you at a taping. Don't sit in the front would be my advice. That's the splash zone. The other night on the show, we had a challenge that I, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about the show. Obviously, we want you to see it when it comes out if you haven't come to see a live taping, but I'll give a little peek behind the curtain, as I always do. Um, and there was one challenge for eating really hot hot sauce and scotch bonnets and stuff. And I'm very competitive. I like to get the points from my team. But just before I was about to eat the spicy sauce, and I love spice, but I mean, this was out of control, out of control, like meant to hurt you spice. Um, Rosie said in the production office, they tried the sauces and everyone was shitting their pants all night, basically. And they only made it a little bit of the ladder up to the spice. And our executive producer, who is a man, was shitting himself all night. And I just thought, it's the patriarchy after me again. Like, of course, a man has the luxury of shitting himself all night. Like I'm on the clock 24 hours a day. I am breastfeeding. I just don't have that kind of time. Sure, I'd love to be shitting my pants for hours up all night, but I can't do that because I'm in demand. So I just, you know, I won't say exactly how I did in the game, but not as well as I think I could have done if I was able to kick back and have diarrhea for 24 hours. I can't do that. And I'm happy to say I had a great night last night. I came home from the recording and I slept. And that's, it's called self-care. I was very comfortable. I didn't, you know, and this is why men have higher insurance on cars and stuff. They take stupid risks, play stupid games, win stupid prizes, lads. But I mean, it was really good television, really fun to watch for those who really went all in for the competition. Uh, Bobby and I were invited by the Cancer Trust to the most amazing gig. So I'm very, I wouldn't call it disorganized. I get in the car when I'm supposed to get in the car. And sometimes I don't really have the full information of where I'm going or why. And I read the briefing document while I'm en route. I knew that this was 
for a cancer charity, I knew that Professor Sir Chris Evans, a very decorated oncologist, not that Chris Evans, a different Chris Evans, was chatting to Andy Taylor about cancer and gene therapy, and they were promoting the cancer platform, which is a really great resource to get information about cancer. And I met a lot of people who are navigating the disease, and they say, oh, I wish I'd known that, I wish I'd known this, and there's just so many new developments and so much information out there and so many different types of disease and ways to fight them. So, I mean, it was, it was a really amazing gig and I knew that it would be that. What I did not realize is that when I arrived, well, I mean, I'll get the sad part out of the way first about the gig before I blow your mind. It was a big barn. I think it was a purpose-built structure for Romeo Beckham's birthday at Soho Farmhouse. And I'm no longer a member of Soho Farmhouse because when, well, of Soho House at all, for a few reasons. It's a members club if you don't know it. They have locations all around the world. I always have a great time when I used to go, but I felt that they didn't really cater to kids. I would try to bring Violet there and they had very few family cabins and the vibe was just, you know, like our members don't really like your kids. And that was true with all the houses for me. Even though they have a little kid barn, they have things. But, you know, the kids' swim times are very limited. And like it's just the vibe of, like, childless professionals, arts people want to have fun and we don't want your kids there. And in fairness, like, a lot of privileged kids are bastards. So I don't want them around either. I understand. Um, but I also don't get a lot of time. Like, when am I going to Greek Street? Like, when am I going out? I'm not hanging around in White City or going to a Soho house for any reason. I don't have fun anymore outside of, you know, monkey music, daytime class, toddler gymnastics. That's my vibe. I'm either working or doing kids stuff or I'm asleep or I'm trying to be asleep or wishing I was asleep. So I canceled my membership. And I, ha- I also have to say, and I wasn't going to say it, now here it is because I can't stop myself, is I don't think the service there was very good. I really don't. I think customer service in the UK, what, and maybe people who are a little bit wealthy go to Soho House to be treated like shit and that, that gets them off somehow. They're like, you'll get your Picante de la Casa when you get it. Just wait there. And sometimes they disappear and they don't come back. And I just thought, as a professional waitress, I can't take this anymore. And I'm not a member, but I got to go for this charity event. And I was excited because I used to have so much fun at Soho Farmhouse and I had fun again. So I, I went there and uh, it was just not the right setup for a comedy gig. I was like, oh, do you know I'm going to die on my ass now? That's fine. I just didn't mind. I thought Bobby and I are already here. Um, I'm very happy to support the charity. Some people might listen to my set. Other people will be chatting and drinking and eating and waiting for the big music gig with Andy Taylor and friends about to kick off. And I just decided that's fine. You know, a younger me might have taken that personally and been like, oh gosh, the, the ceilings are too high. You know, it's difficult to explain to a non-comedian what makes and doesn't make a good comedy gig. It was basically like no seating. People were standing, of course, because it's more music driven. And there was food and drinks and, and conversations in different bars and high, 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 high ceilings and bright lights and people laugh less in the light. They're more self-conscious. People want to sit down with a pint. You know, it's just the best place to have a comedy club is like a pub, basement, damp dungeon. You know, that works for comedy. But this, I was like, oh God, oh no. And these people looked amazing. I assume they've been to the best gigs in the world. They're really slumming it, having to stand there and be polite to me for 20 minutes. But many did. They made a very British little semicircle and they smiled and they kind of laughed along. 
And I said to everyone, you know what? You can do whatever you like for the next 20 minutes. It will not affect me. I don't have an ego about it. If you want to turn your back and go over there and have a conversation, if you want to be loud, if you want to sing, if you want to go order from the bar, if you know, do whatever, I'm not going to get hurt feelings about it. Consider me a jazz pianist right now. Like this is your 20 minutes. They basically need to set up the equipment for the gig. I am here as that buffer. I'm very happy to support, but like, don't listen if you don't want to. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, I met so many nice people. I was very happy to be there. But yeah, I died on my ass. Like I wasn't funny. You couldn't really hear what I was saying. And that's fine. That's fine. Because after that, I went into the main gig with everyone, chatted to a few people, took some pics. And Robert Plant was performing for the first time in 16 years, Stairway to Heaven, amongst other songs in his set list with Andy Taylor on guitar and then some other musicians that I, you know, hold my hands up. I didn't know who they were. Some of them might've been session musicians and so I can be forgiven, but they were the best of the best musicians. And to see basically Led Zeppelin like revived after 16 years was an experience that I will never forget. And Bobby needs to remember how lucky he is to be hitched to my celebrity wagon because he didn't know that was happening. Like Bobby was parking the car. He didn't really stay for my set. He had dealt with the kids all day. And then I was filming all day and we met after work. Miriam had them overnight so that we could have this special experience. And it was just meant to kind of be like my gig and a date night and hear from the cancer platform and see Andy Taylor. We had no idea that Robert Plant was going to come out. And Bobby was almost tearful about it. He's like, whoa, whoa, that's, that's Robert. I think I was probably kissing him or talking to him. And he looked over my shoulder and with that, like shoved my face out of the way. That's Robert Plant. I said, yeah, it is. And those are the kind of gigs that you can sometimes, but not often go to with me. And it was so intimate then. His gig was not in this big barn with the high ceilings. It was in a more intimate you know, venue that they were setting up during my horrible routine. <laughs> and um, it was awesome. It was crazy. It was like five people away from us. And then when we woke up in the morning after a very restful night, though, I mean, I still have to express milk when the baby's not with me. And I didn't sleep that well because I kept waking up being like, where are the kids? What is going on? And I'd filmed all day. So I was a little bit restless and I'd had three glasses of wine, which is one and a half glasses of wine more than my current maximum allowance. I just can't drink anymore. I just didn't sleep that well. But we woke up in the morning and this gig had been in NME and all these publications like Robert Plant performed Stairway to Heaven for the first time in 16 years. And we're like, we know we got to see it. And you can see videos of it online or on Bobby's Instagram. Um, it was just outrageous, outrageous. And then there was an auction, a worldwide auction for some Banksy paintings, Picasso. Like a, it was amazing the people who turned out to support the Cancer Trust. Um, cancer platform. Go there if you need any information. It's such a great resource. And um, I'm just so grateful to the organizers for having including, included me. I'm just so grateful. It was great. It was awesome. And cancer is something that touches us all. It has unfortunately touched my family this week. Uh, we lost someone that, you know, was a really, really great guy. And everybody loved him. And I hadn't seen, I don't see my family at all. It's really sad. I'm just so, so removed. Not you know, I, uh, admittedly, I do sort of have a little bit of beef with some people, but other people I don't have beef with. I'm just, I've just been gone for so long, but I remember, you know, these people will be hurting together and they have each other. And this was one of the most awesome people in my family. And my sisters are really cut up about it. So, um, yeah, 
it's a it's a thing that we hope does not visit us or our loved ones but when it does go to the cancer platform for information i had a beautiful restful sleep uh more restful than i do at home i guess and the cabins they've like built new cabins there and new hotel rooms and the whole house is like revamped and then i have to say in the morning we stayed for brunch before driving home and i received excellent service so everything's changed and I've slagged them off a lot, but if they will offer me membership, I would be open to maybe becoming a member again. Um, I don't know if I'm their core audience. All the women at Soho Farmhouse just look like, you know, they, they feel like they might bump into Kate Middleton at any point. And they have to wear like cashmere trench coats and boots like Hunter Wellingtons, but then they've got kind of monochrome outfits. It's sort of like Molly May came in and styled them all. They've all got scarves and really important bags and really gorgeous little dogs and uh, beautiful children. There's a lot of knitwear happening, but it's a really specific look. They've all got their hair done. They've all got tussled, like beautiful blowouts and long locks. And I just, I mean, I either look like a complete vagrant or so much more famous than I really am, because I roll up looking exactly like I look right now. I mean, I meant to get ready for this podcast today because I'm starting to film the new series. I brought my makeup out here. There's no mascara in the bag. Oh, well, didn't have any eyeliner. I've overlined my lips. That was a choice. I'm filming the podcast and releasing some clips online if you're someone who just listens, because we got to get with the 20th century, 21st century. I'm like one of the only people who doesn't film my podcast. Where can I watch the whole thing, Catherine? I don't know. You probably can't. Not for a while anyway. But um, I just looked like this. I mean, my hair was scraped up in a scrunchie. And the scrunchies that I wear, I've been told by Joanne, are actually designed to pad out a hijab. So they're like these big scrunchies and they're meant to give you some volume under your hijab. However, I'm allowed to wear them. I've checked with some of the Muslim community, they're not cultural appropriation. So my hair was like wet, scraped back. I had no makeup on. I had Ugg boots on, gray track. I mean, exactly the trackies that I'm wearing now. I just, maybe I couldn't be a member because I don't fit in sartorially. But on the way out, oh my gosh. And for those of you who have never been to Soho Farmhouse, right now, it's decorated so beautifully, so autumnally. Big wagons of pumpkins spilling out and the leaves look so gorgeous. And then at the little hut where you check out, they have Baileys and hot chocolate. You know how I feel about the UK's, uh, nay, the world's favorite Irish cream liqueur. (laughs) Um, They have Baileys and they'll pour it into a little thing of hot chocolate in a takeaway cup and give it to you like as a parting gift or an arrival treat. I was like, yes. So Bobby was getting the car. I was checking out, I had my little Baileys and hot chocolate, and then I see a gorgeous family with a teeny tiny little Shih Tzu dog. And Megan, Meg Ryan, my dog, is also a Shih Tzu. And small Shih Tzus come from kind of only one of two breeders in the UK. It is a toy breed, but if you breed it down to be a teacup, and a lot of people are against doing this, you should just get rescues, I know. But Megan costs like a lot of money, and she was a very designer handbag dog, and she is so micro small. I wouldn't even recommend getting a dog as small as Megan. This dog was bigger than Megan, but gorgeous, looked a lot healthier than Megan. And this is the thing that small dog owners do, is they compete. They all do this. They get their backs up over whose dog is the smallest. And of course, people with gorgeous dogs like that, they get a lot of attention. And you would think, well, 
I mean, I don't want to say, I don't want to victim blame or anything. It's not like you're asking for it by having a gorgeous dog, but you know what's happening. When you got that gorgeous caramel boy walking around, people are going to stop and they're going to bother you and it's going to fuck up your day. But I see this dog and I said, oh my gosh, that's such a gorgeous dog. And they almost, they were very generous, very gracious with me, but I could feel like a little bit of a, we don't want to talk about the dog with yet another person. And I look you know, I'm not wearing the Soho Farmhouse uniform. I look a little bit nuts. And the family was like, oh, yes. I said, he's so small. They said, yes. I said, I have a teacup Shih Tzu as well. Actually, she's smaller than he is. And then they were really interested. They're like, smaller than he is? I said, yes, she is smaller than he is. And I didn't mean to do it, but I guess I must have known what I was doing because I know the language of small dog owners. I know that it is an absolute bun fight for skinniest dogs. It's basically like Carl Lagerfeld and dogs are on the runway and you want your thinnest one, you know, the small, oh, well, my dog is just a whisper. It's giving starvation. It's giving, you know, breathlessness. Megan is only two kilos or less. She is so small. And this was a small dog, but I had to get my phone out and be like, look, look at pictures of Megan to prove that my dog was the smallest. Why? Why did I have to do that when I know that it is an antagonizing conversation to have with small dog owners? And then I don't think they liked me after that, though they continued to be very kind but I just got the vibe, you know, the vibe of like, get away from our family and our dog. So I just, I shouldn't have mentioned how small Megan was. I should have just done the real, the normal thing that they would love to. Wow. That's the smallest Shih Tzu I've ever seen. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't. And I know this because it's how I feel. Sometimes people go, oh, Megan's way smaller in real life. Cause all dogs photograph bigger. And I go, yes, she is very, she's the smallest Shih Tzu. And she really is. But I need to not have conversations like that because I could have made a friend. I could have had an extra few minutes petting a Shih Tzu, but I feel like I pissed off his dad. And so I had to leave. And then we drove home. Which brings me to an offer that I received in my inbox as soon as I arrived home. And this is tricky to talk about because I know that things that I say on this podcast often get lifted and printed in tabloid media and then online magazines and things, and sometimes it's without context. And I think in black and white, I seem more like pissed off than I really am. In real life, I'm kind of just noticing things and commenting on them and telling everybody everything. I receive an email from my agent that says, Catherine, great news. A women's magazine want to give you the Christmas cover and make you woman of the year. I won't say which magazine, but I have just presented the Glamour Women of the Year Award, so I have to say it's not Glamour. Obviously, they had several women of the year, and it was not that. And right away, so unfortunately, I felt sad. I went, no, they don't want to make me woman of the year. They don't. And my agent said, well, they do. What do you mean? They want to do a, an amazing December cover and collaborate with Jen and Fiona, your hair, makeup, and wardrobe, and they want to do this big interview and make you. And I said, they don't. They want to make a man woman of the year through me. Let me explain what I mean by that. I've been in uh, the press over the last month, dragged into some controversy over a subject that I don't like to discuss. I feel as though people used to discuss, are women funny? Are women funny? And every time you try to sell your tour or go on a show and be funny, instead of just letting you be funny, they bring up a very serious, sad conversation and go, are women funny? People don't think women are funny. What do you say when women, are... and then you can't be funny because you're like talking about a real issue. 
And the new, are women funny, is, are there predators in the industry? What is it like navigating an industry that is full of predators? Who's a predator? Who's not a predator? What do you do about it? How does it make you feel? What about sexism in your industry? And it's like, all right, well, once again, we're just trying to be funny. And now we have to talk about that. And I feel that I've said everything that I have ever intended to say on that subject. And sometimes I've answered questions because I'm trying to be polite. People keep asking me about it. I said I don't want to talk about it anymore just because I don't. And people keep asking me and keep asking me. And every once in a while I slip up and I go, oh, well, I really like you. So, okay, well, but I don't want to talk about it. And I said to my agent, they don't want to make me woman of the year. They want to do an interview where they talk about navigating my industry as a woman and what that's like. And I'm not giving them that interview. And my agent said, oh, well, we'll absolutely say there are no-go areas. And I rolled my big blue eyes and I went, it's not happening. And I was right. We received an email back that said, oh, well, we wouldn't need her to mention any names, but yes, we would want to talk about, I mean, I forget how they phrased it, basically being a voice against sexism in the industry, blah, blah, blah. And if not, let's just leave it. As in... If I don't agree to talk about men and my reaction to men and what they mean for me and my industry and sexism and all the rest, and probably much more serious subjects than that as well, will be woven into that interview. If I'm not ready to talk about men, then I can't be woman of the year. They said, if she doesn't want to talk about it, we'll leave it for now. And I knew that was what was going to happen. I'm not surprised. And this is a women's magazine. That's meant to be like, oh, we're for women. But oh, if you don't want to talk about men, then you can't. We're not going to do a cover with you. Have I not achieved enough? In the, well, I haven't, first of all. I'm not really into a lot of philanthropy. Um, I don't publicly advocate for a lot of like political things. I try to be a good ally, but I'm not really um, involved in enough to be <laughs> awarded Woman of the Year. And that's fair play. No. But I mean, if... It just feels like a real bait and switch that they were going to come in with. We want to do a cover and make you this lovely thing. And then we would have been like, oh, okay, and gotten into the shoot. Maybe we would have done the shoot. Maybe we would have gotten as far as to booking Jen and Fiona hair and makeup, talking about the shoot, like doing all these things, getting really excited. And then they would do the interview, the very last thing. And, I, and then it's very hard to be impolite and say, oh, but I didn't want to talk about all that stuff. Oh, I don't want to let you down. Oh, that's what you want to, oh, okay. Well, you've already done the shoot. Oh, okay, here I go talking about it fucking again. I've had two babies in the last two years. Um, I'm raising a teenager. I'm navigating those challenges as a mother. I'm trying to multitask. I'm trying to get back to work. I'm trying to write a new tour. I'm making television. I've written a book. I have a podcast weekly. I'm doing a lot of things that... You know, I would think, you know, and I used to be a single mom who's very financially insecure, came to this country 3,000 miles away from anybody who loved me. I feel like my story alone without the men could be very inspirational. It inspires me. I'm like, holy shit. And I feel that I feel that it trickles down to so many other women. I go, if I did that, I'm not special. If I did that, everyone can maybe hopefully do that or a version of that. It's like if you look upwards and try and believe in yourself and really go for it. I feel like that when I say my life is my message, which I thought was a Matthew McConaughey quote, but he stole it from Gandhi. So it's a Gandhi quote that I've now reappropriated. My life is my message. It's like, go for it and don't be held back by imposter syndrome and just 
do it authentically, unapologetically, and you can have it or have some of it. And I know that I started out that journey far more privileged than a lot of people. I know that. My parents were around to catch me if I fell. I had mental health. I was young. I was very traditionally gorgeous at the time, though that is waning. You know, I had privileges, yes. But, you know, isn't that funny? (laughs) So I don't want to burn any bridges with the magazine. I like the magazine. I do. But there's so much hypocrisy of like, you can't be woman of the year and do a cover with us unless you want to spend the whole interview talking about men and sexism in your industry. Well, no thanks. Like, keep your interview. I'm not, ugh, I'm not talking about it anymore. But I will still purchase and read the magazine. No hard feelings. No hard feelings. But um, you can't even call someone a Nepo baby anymore. I wasn't a Nepo baby. So I wasn't like as privileged as some. But I used the term Nepo baby the other day. And someone was like, oh, no, you can't say that because it hurts feelings of Nepo babies. And it's like, all right. Recognizing your own privilege is not a bad thing. It doesn't take away from the fact that you also are probably a hard worker and you're talented. It's just like, be honest about, oh, yes, but my dad is, you know, owner of the the Seattle Seahawks. Is that even a team? Oh, everybody loves football so much because of Taylor Swift. It is so cute because Bobby and Violet are now spending Sunday nights and Monday nights together. They started out doing that when he came into our lives and she was about nine. She kind of got into the Steelers thing. Bobby likes the Pittsburgh Steelers. And she would watch it a bit and she got excited. And I feel like sports is too rich for my blood. I don't like the like ups and downs. And it makes me kind of nervous when I'm invested in a team. I, I don't like that feeling. Um, but Violet now loves it again. And she watches. She's like dialed into the Chiefs game in case she sees Taylor Swift. And I just think it's a beautiful relationship. And I cannot wait for the Eras tour. We are going. And it is in, well, June and August. That woman, I mean, she is, to, how many dates is she doing? How many tour dates? I think she's taking a break now, but she's just all over the place. And I think Violet's going to go and see her twice. So we can't wait for that. We are super excited. One thing I saw online that made me very upset before I go to the letters and the advert break is a giant snake. What is going on with Australia? Australia should be stopped immediately. There was an Instagram video that went viral. A mother was filming and you could hear her daughter or son in the background being like, look at that snake, mommy. I can't do an Australian accent. I hope I never can. I hope I never learn it. It's my least favorite accent of all time. No offense, I know I actually have a lot of Australian listeners. (laughs) And you probably hate the Canadian accent, so we're square. There was this giant five-meter-long python crawling along the house, and it was so big. I didn't even know that snakes were that big. Like, I've seen Anaconda, which was some, like, horror thriller about killer Brazilian snakes. This snake was bigger than that snake. It was five meters. Like, how long is a meter? It was more, it had to be more than five meters because it was crawling along the entire house and going from this big house into a tree and like just very creepily slithering through the branches, slithering down. And it was as big as the tree. I'm not joking. Like it went the length of the house and into a tree and everyone sounded very calm. The mom's just like, look at that snake. And the little kid goes, daddy could get the snake. (laughs) Mom's like, no. Daddy can't get the snake. Uh, Yeah, you're right. No, daddy can't get the snake. Speaking of snakes and speaking of daddies, I'm going to sneak this in before I go. 
Bobby has one job in my life is to put gas. I mean, no, Bobby does a lot around the house. He clears out my many boxes from the garage. His zone is like the outdoors. So anything happening outdoors, i.e. garden, like drain pipes, whatever the, I don't even know what's going on outdoors. The pool, I don't bother myself with any of it. And I feel like Bobby's happy doing that. He likes doing the bins. I think he has a cheeky cigarette when he's outside. So all the outside jobs are Bobby's. And then he does, he's very hands-on with the kids, especially now that we have two. And I feel like running the house is a legitimate job that would have, that would get a lot more respect if it wasn't considered to be women's work. People disrespect women's jobs and being a house person, homemaker, whatever you want to call it, is one of those very important jobs. And Bobby does a lot and I respect that. But I don't personally ask him for much. You know, I feel like if I was a different gender and I was doing the career that I'm doing, earning the money that I'm earning, my wife might pack me a lunch. Like, I don't know. I don't know what happens in these relationships, but I just don't really want much from people. Except, except, I say, keep my car full of gas. And Bobby uses my car. My car is the one to ferry around the children because we have car seats in it. It's got room for the double buggy. My car is the family car. And I say, keep that full of gas. Just put gas in the car. And I'm always harping on about this fucking car. And today I got in to go collect Fred from nursery. He's going to nursery two mornings a week. And by the way, I know that a competitor nursery listens to this podcast because I mentioned that Fred goes to nursery and I immediately got a call from the competitor nursery where I also had him placed on a wait list. (laughs) And the lady there is so nice. And I wish I could have sent him there. I want to go there myself, but it was just too city for Fred. Fred is a country boy. And she rang me. She said, oh, hi, Catherine. Just wondering if we're still keeping Fred and Fenna on the wait list. And I had to be like, oh, no. I felt like I was breaking up with the nursery of my dreams. So Fred goes to an incredible nursery, though. He loves it. And so two mornings a week, I pick him up. And I was going there. And I noticed that I only had, I don't know, it said fuel low. And then it said I had seven miles left. Seven miles which is too few. Like, I don't even like the fuel tank half full because I don't know what's going to happen. There could be a situation where I need to be on the run. I don't know. I might go the wrong way. Well, I will probably go the wrong way. And then I need to circle back. Who knows what kind of diversion there's going to be. I might want to go to Starbucks. Anything could happen. And I have an attitude of abundance. I feel like we can afford to have full tanks of gas. Let's always have full tanks of gas, please. And then I feel like I could do anything. I don't have anxiety and I'm not an anxious person, but having low, 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 low fuel actually does make me very anxious. I don't like it because if I were to run out or if I were to get lost, (laughs) even with sat navs, then what would I do? Like, I don't know what to do. I would have to call people. I would have to like, there's no AAA, I don't think in this country, or maybe there is, but I don't have it. I'm gonna have to walk to a petrol station. And I did run out of gas one time in Canada and I called, this was before Uber, a local mini cab company. And I said to them, go to a petrol station and bring me a little tank of gas and I'll pay you for the gas and I'll pay you for your journey. And they did that for me. And they were like, that was really clever of you. No one's ever asked us to do that. And I was like, thanks. But actually, I think it's kind of unsafe. I'm not not sure if you're allowed to drive with like a tank of like a bucket of gas (laughs) in your car. Anyway, listen, I digress. I don't want to have low fuel. And I say this to Bobby all the time, all the time. I don't say wash my car. I don't say, you know, I just say, please keep the fucking tank full. And it was empty. And so I texted him, put 
gas in my car. And I sent him a photo of the empty gas meter and he was golfing. I knew he was golfing because I'm doing the chores, juggling the podcast. Miriam is here. We do have childcare today, but just put gas in the car. And I was actually angry because I was like, why is this one thing that matters to me? Because I think couples don't fight about the fight. They fight about something else that is brought out by the fight. And I feel that his repeated failure to put petrol in my car, I feel that what makes me angry about that is that I'm not heard and I'm, I'm like not, I don't want to say gaslit. I just feel that my emotions are invalidated and rejected. You know, I feel dismissed when that's it. That's what makes me angry. And I never get angry. And I'm not even, I'm like comedy angry. I feel completely dismissed because I say, Bobby, it really matters to me that I know there's loads of gas and then it doesn't happen. And then I feel unsafe and I feel dismissed. And so I was angry. I felt like I had a lot on my plate today and I just felt angry. And I'm driving with Violet to go get Fred because she is on half term and she wanted to be the hero to collect him at the doors. And I just felt like, ooh, invalidated, dismissed, furious. And then Bobby sends me another text. He said, oh. So Bobby texts me back. He says, oh, sorry. I promise you'll be able to make it to nursery and back. Don't worry. But if you go to get gas, remember, this car is petrol, not diesel. And I smiled because those words opened a door for a hilarious prank. So. I made it. Bobby was right. I had nothing to worry about. I made it to nursery and back. But then I went to fill the car with petrol. It costs like 130 pounds, by the way. And I text Bobby back, oh, I didn't see your text right away. I filled it with diesel, but no problem. I've been driving around. It works great. It's not an issue. And he texts me back, it is an issue. It's really bad to fill the car with diesel when it's a petrol car. And I know this already because I was in Germany about a decade ago and my friend Cindy picked me up at the airport and she made the same mistake. And her car started making crazy noises on the way home and her husband was really annoyed. And I remember at the time him being like, it's a new car, so you didn't know, but like the more gas you put in it that's wrong, the more damage is done. I remembered that in my little pea brain And I told Bobby, I put full diesel on an empty tank that required petrol. And I acted like it was fine. And he texted me back, that's not fine. And I know that I've ruined his golf game. I know that I've ruined it because Bobby's pet peeve is like damaging things or doing the wrong things or wasting money. And now he thinks that I've been driving around with a tank full of diesel on a car that requires petrol and it will do damage to the engine that he's going to have to sort out. And I never prank Bobby, but this was an awesome one. I'm going to call him actually and see. If I laugh, I'll have to hang up though. He might not answer because he's on the golf course. We don't know. But he should answer. Like, I'm here with three of his children. Your call has been forwarded to voicemail. The person. Like, what if I was in trouble? He's calling me. He's calling me. Hello? Hello? Hi. Everything, everything okay? Yeah. Oh, I missed a call from you. I know. I just called because. I don't know. I googled putting um, diesel in the car, and it is bad. You put diesel in for real? Yeah. Oh, for fuck's sake! Okay, yeah, I know that. I thought you were joking. No. Okay. Oh my god. But what does it do? Because it said the more the more that I put in, the worse it is, and I put a whole tank of diesel. We have to get get the whole tank removed. 
What do you mean the whole tank removed? Like all the gas out of there. How are you going to do that? I don't know. We can't drive it. I ha- I drove it, so like I, f- I it was. Goes, but it'll destroy the motor. Well, I already drove. Um, it was fine though. Like the car was behaving fine. Well, no, we gotta get that sorted. I'll call the Jaguar dealer and ask what they think. Well, if you just put gas in my car, this never would have happened. That's true, but you know. How much is it gonna cost? I have no idea, honey. Oh. I'll have to call them. How are you playing? What's that? I'm finished now. I'm just walking off the last hole. How did you play? Good. Okay. Well, Good. I drove for like 40 minutes already. No, I know. It's just, yeah, I'll sort it out. Don't worry. I, I didn't joking. put diesel in the car, you fucking idiot. <laughs> you prick. That's what you deserve. Is this on the podcast? Yes, it's on the podcast. Oh, no. Well, that's my fault. What? I, I, blame, I blame Violet because Gas she forgot in lunch. My car. I forgot Fred's lunch and I had to race back to make the tea time. And so I, I'm sorry, but it won't happen again. It will not happen again because of my smooth diesel prank. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Because it makes me feel scared when I don't have gas. I know. Well, I'll, uh, I'll make it up to you in the bedroom, I guess. <laughs> okay. All right. I love you. Um, Miriam's inside with the kids. They both went down at like around 1.30. All right. And I'm doing the podcast. And I'm proud of you for putting the right fuel in also. Well, I wouldn't have if you didn't text me, so thank you. But it also paved the way for my hilarious prank. God. How did you feel when you thought there was a full tank of diesel? I felt terrible letting you down and then, yeah. So that's how I felt. I had a pit of my stomach, felt sick because I thought I was going to run out of gas on the motorway. Well, you wouldn't have run out of gas. I wouldn't have let you do that. But you don't like to go like far to the slash. I get thrills going I know. towards empty, like the Seinfeld episode. So, listen, anyways. I was mad. I was like actually mad, and then I felt so awesome when I thought of this prank. So it's like all full circle. It's really good. Oh, lovely. All right, love you. I right, love you too. See you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Please listen to these words from our sponsors. When we return, I will see what your wonderful letters hold, what dilemmas you have, what comments you have. If you ever want to write me a letter, it's telling everybody everything at gmail.com. I'll be right back. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. All right, the listeners are doing God's work. We have more of you writing in about the Natural History Museum blue whale skeleton that is hanging. Are people getting into a trap door in this thing and fucking in it? This one is titled Doubtful of Whale Bangings. Catherine, I was a research scientist at the museum for several years, up until I left in 2019. I feel I can fairly confidently say that banging in the whale was not 
or never has been a thing, scientists love to gossip, and if someone had ever successfully banged in the whale, it would have made it to the rumor mill and no doubt become a legend. Security in the museum is pretty tight after hours because of all the priceless specimens in the collections, and security cameras are everywhere. It would be tricky to even bang in your office, as you have to email security if you plan on staying in the office after 8 p.m., and then security will come and check on you intermittently. Even during drunken Christmas parties, we were not allowed to wander around the exhibitions and had to stay in the designated party areas. Sounds to me like this guy was spinning a line. And the best he could have realistically offered was a storage cupboard or one of the bathrooms. Sorry to disappoint. I would love it to be true. Ah, oh, man. I mean, I'm not. Why am I invested? I don't need people. Ba- Actually, I'm glad that this was a line and people seemingly are not banging in the whale because that would be desecrating. You know, that whale is a real guy and he had a family and he got lost in Ireland and that's his story. And like, would you want people banging in you if you're ever put in the Natural History Museum? No, you would not. And another writes in very doubtful. Catherine, there's a taxidermy whale at the Gothenburg Museum. Am I pronouncing Gothenburg wrong? I think it's Gothenburg in my accent anyway. The jaw is hinged and people go inside the massive mouth. The inside was kitted out with benches, carpets, and wall hangings, which I imagine would have been quite cozy. In the 1930s, apparently a couple were caught in the act, so the museum decided to only open it up on special occasions like Swedish election days. So maybe that is how the rumor started. Oh, and she has attached a photo of inside the whale. Oh, yeah. So it's way smaller than I would think. And they got like a black and white photo of loads of people sitting very snugly. You know, they look like they're in a bunker. It's not like roomy in there. And there's a table with loads of things. I mean... Look, stop messing around. Like, this is a deceased. We are all going to get in big trouble, by the way, soon for how we treated animals in our lifetime. And the stuff that we allowed to happen is crazy, is crazy. And I completely understand why you would want to be a vegan. I am not vegan, but I can't say that every time I consume an animal product, I don't feel like fucked up about it. Like, I feel really, really sad and weird and bad um, constantly about how we treat animals. And that's just not that we farm them and eat them, but the fact that we hang them up in museums and we keep them in zoos, like that actually occupies a lot of my time, a lot of my thoughts. And we just disassociate. I've been thinking a lot about disassociation and the, the atrocities that we allow to happen. So this is all in good fun, banging in the whale, but like, just don't bang in a whale. If you ever have an opportunity to bang in the skeleton of someone else, be that a whale or whatever, don't do it. So good. I'm happy. Here are some new emails. Catherine, my partner thinks he's funny. Oh no. Why would you have a partner who wasn't funny? Like, what is the point? Life, as I just mentioned, comes at you fast, and a lot of things are really dark and need to be navigated with humor. Jimmy Carr had a a clip go viral earlier this week where he was saying that he believes comedy should be taught above music. It's more important than music to teach in schools because it gives you all these tools to deal with real life. And I don't disagree. And a lot of people... You know, oh, music benefits your blah, blah, not for everyone, but comedy helps everyone. 
Catherine, I've been with my partner for almost four years and his humor and navigation of conversation at gatherings is making me uncomfortable. I've started to dread socializing with him in group settings and my friends don't include him in invites. At first, I thought perhaps he's just socially awkward as I know he feels very uncomfortable if there are moments of silence, but his attempts to avoid these often result in odd or inappropriate comments, some of which have had racist or sexist undertones or bad jokes which leave people awkwardly looking at him and at each other. Sometimes those who are closest to him try and explain to him why he can't say certain things as if they're talking to a child, but it's almost like this is a part of his stand-up routine because he'll pretend to not understand and it's obvious he's pretending because he's smiling, holding in a laugh and is looking around for people's reactions. He has also sometimes admitted to me that he is pretending because I've called him out afterwards when it's just us alone. I don't feel like it's my place to tell someone else how to act in social situations or to say what's funny or not, but it's really bugging me when it's just us. Oh, no, it's really bugging me as when it's just us, he's a toned down version of how he acts in front of others and will also sometimes make very witty remarks. He's also hurt that my friends now don't include him. I don't know how to explain to him that it's due to how he interacts with them. He believes it's because I haven't made it clear that I want him to be included. I want to enjoy socializing with my partner, and I'd love for us to have some strong mutual friendships, which I think could happen if he acted differently. I know I shouldn't care what people think, and perhaps I'm part of the problem if people sense my discomfort with his comments or humor. Am I selfish for caring about this? Should I find my partner funny? Do I have a conversation with him about this? If so, how do I begin to approach that? I already feel so much guilt writing this email, and I think he might feel hurt reading it. Okay. I've said it before. It's okay not to be the right person for someone else. And this guy is not the right person for you. It doesn't sound like he's a bad person. Um... You know, it doesn't mean that you don't share loads of other wonderful things that have made this a good relationship thus far, but this entanglement has to end. You don't mention kids. It doesn't sound like you have them, but like, my God, do you want to have kids who are not funny? And like, everyone's like <laughs> around the dinner table and you have to be like, yeah, I'm the reason he multiplied. Great. And then you have like a whole family of people that no one else wants to be around. No, thank you. And he sounds like an asshole to me. And the part that really stood out is that he is so unable to self-reflect and look at his own responsibility for his social conduct that he blames it on you. He goes, well, you haven't made it clear that you want me included. You need to do this. You need to advocate for me. It's your fault. What? People have told him. What do you mean? Like, I don't know really how to tell him. People have laid it out for him like a child. And... You know, we're very progressive now. I know there will be some people listening going, well, maybe he's neurodiverse and you're not making space for that. And he is panicking. He doesn't know how to act. Maybe, but there will be someone who loves him for that. And right now he's making you really uncomfortable. You don't think he's funny. So liberate him. Liberate him from the shackles of this relationship. You know, because someone had to phrase it to me like that with a boyfriend once. They were like, no, you're not like breaking his heart and destroying him. Yeah, it's going to be sad when you break up and you aren't the right person for him. But by holding on to him and trying to become the right person and bring yourself around to the things about him that give you the ick, you are also preventing him from meeting someone who loves his jokes and really thinks he's funny and wants to hang out 
with loads of, you know, racist, sexist joke makers all together. And their friends love him because they're all assholes. Do you know? Like, it's a kindness sometimes to let someone go. And uh, I just don't think that this is solvable. I don't. Because it's uh, it's not like he's done this and how do I navigate it? It's like, it's a core part of who he is. You don't find him funny. And sometimes he's witty and funny around you. Okay. But he's ultimately going to alienate you from your friends or else you're going to go out with your friends and it's going to make him feel that it's got all these problems with it. So you need to stop. Um, And also you need to not be with someone that you can't have these frank conversations with. Like if if I'm you and that's my boyfriend, I go, look, you can't say these things in front of people. Um, you, You shouldn't think these things at all, actually. And if you do, then you and I have very opposite senses of humor. I don't really find you funny. And I need to spend my entire life, like you're going to live to be a hundred. You need to spend your life with someone that you find funny. I don't know why you are with someone who makes you uncomfortable ever at all. You feel that it's not your place to tell someone else how to act in social situations or to say what's funny or not. Right. Well, but this is your partner and he's being left off invites and it's hurting his feelings. And now he's blaming you for that. And these are conversations you need to be able to have in a relationship. And if it, if you have the conversation once and it's not instantly ameliorated, then you let him go. You go, oh, I feel like I don't want to change you. This is who you are. This is what you think is funny. It's not funny to me. We're done. We're donezo. Balancing bed sharing and romance. Oh, God. Catherine? As a new mom yourself and advocate for attachment advocate for attachment parenting, I am looking for advice. I have a six-year-old daughter and a nine-month-old son. The one thing that's always been consistent is nighttime, where the baby shares my bed, and he pretty much nurses on and off all night. That's the same with Fena and me. This is a completely different experience to our older daughter, who slept independently from six months old. She wasn't breastfed. Well, I wonder why that is. You had two such different experiences parenting. Okay, so the thing is, my partner and I have not shared a bed in over a year. He moved into the spare room in late pregnancy, and since the baby came along, it's just been the easiest thing for everyone. My partner and my relationship has become increasingly fragile. There's zero closeness between us anymore. It's gotten to the point where it feels like we are just ships passing, sharing a space. Sleeping with the baby is taking its toll, not only on the family, but physically, as sleep is so disrupted. When I do sleep, it's often uncomfortable because of the attachment. Yeah, I get it. I agree. That said, I absolutely love the bond that I have with my baby and I want to cherish these moments forever. He is my last child and I want to enjoy it. And I want to be everything that he needs in the time that I can. It's already tough having to leave him for work. So how do you manage to find this balance? I'm so tired of feeling guilty. If it's not guilty toward my partner, it's guilty toward the baby. Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. I like feel so... Like, I want to reach through the microphone and give you a hug. You just feel like shit sometimes because you are trying to be everything to everyone. And we have these ideas about being a mom. And we have one foot in this new narrative of like, you can kill it at work, girl. You're a girl boss. Girl math. Get it, girl. Go, girl. And then we also have a foot in our grandmother's life where you have to kill it at home and be amazing in the sack and like please your husband and also have everything tidy and make little like panda shapes for lunch. I don't know. I don't even know what the expectations are, but we're supposed to do it all and we're supposed to be fine with doing it all. And that's just not the reality for anyone. And I think that the worst thing 
that you can do for your baby and for your marriage is heap on extra guilt to yourself so that you feel even worse because then there's going to be even less of you to go around. And the first step is acknowledging that the deck is stacked against us. Society now, uh, I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think they want that your children institutionalized. They want us all working, both parents back at work. They want your kids in daycare. Then they want your kids in school. And um, there's a lot to be said for being rested, having one parent at home, having one parent to manage all this stuff. But instead, like there's not enough money to go around. There's not enough sleep. There's not enough time for most families in most countries and certainly in the UK. And that really pisses me off. And I recognize all the time how lucky I am that Bobby can stay home with our kids and that I have a schedule where sometimes I get to sleep as well. So my heart goes out to you. I think you're going to need to have a conversation with your husband and maybe set a deadline. Be like, our relationship is suffering and I think certainly what's best for the kids in the long term is that you have a healthy marriage if you plan on staying in that marriage. That's what I think. So I talk to my husband and be like, look, I have noticed, as I'm sure you have noticed, that intimacy isn't there. I feel at a distance from you. It really makes me sad. I love you so much. I miss how it used to be. I'm guessing that maybe your six-year-old might even be from a different relationship and this is your husband's like first baby, maybe not. But I would say, here's why I am so committed to co-sleeping. I love the baby. This is my last baby. And I just feel like I want to be there for him. However, it is taking away from me, it's taking away from our marriage, and so I'm going to put a cap on it. When the baby is one, which is now only three months away, I'm going to transition the baby to a bed, and it's going to be hard, and I'm going to have a really tired three weeks doing that, but I found some books about it. There are so many gentle sleep specialists. You don't have to sleep train them from newborn. There are people who can transition a one-year-old into a different attachment style, sleeping in their own bed. And then you can still go get him early in the morning and nurse him when he wakes up and do all these different things. But you can't have it all. And whoever lied to us and said we can have it all should be shot out of a cannon. We can't. You can have it all at different times. So right now you can have that closeness with your baby, but you can't have sleep and you can't have intimacy with your husband the way you want it. Soon you can have those things though. So I think I would just say to my husband, like, let's make a plan. It's going to be soon. And then ask for his help. Be like, what are you going to help me do to transition this baby when I get him in his own cot or whatever? And maybe it makes you sad, but you can't keep doing this for two years or your marriage is going to dissolve. And you can't, like, you are too tired to do this for two years. You're going to start snapping at everyone. So I think put a cap on it. Discuss amongst yourselves. Like, I think a year, because, and I mean, I'm saying this because this is sort of what I'm planning to do in my house, but who knows? Fen is 10 months, and I think all the time about my personal goals, not for my marriage because we have sex in the day, but um, I think, and not very often, by the way, I'm thinking that my goal is to get both babies into their own room together and move Fenna into a cot, but then like day to day, I don't want to do it. I like sleeping with her, so who knows? I think you and I need to do this together, coming from very different families and different perspectives. We're going to get our babies sleeping in their own beds by or around one-year-old. And finally, thanks from a mom. I just wanted to drop a quick message, Catherine, to say thank you. You spoke about your daughter having a UTI recently. My daughter is Fred's age and recently caught a UTI. I would not 
have even thought to consider it as a possibility if I hadn't recently listened to you talk about your daughter, but I clocked it straight away. She was quite sick and in pain. So I was really glad that I'd already got the wheels in motion to get her to the GP and get some antibiotics. Thanks again for talking about all the normal things. Well, good, because this podcast is a fucking shambles. Um, but yes, um, Fena had a fever when she was small because she and I had like a bit of a stomach bug for a day. Uh, as you know, I potty trained my kids very young. Fena was only six months at the time and she was still wearing a nappy to sleep and she had very loose nappies for like a day and a half and listener, so did I, though not in a nappy. I had some kind of stomach bug. And I mentioned this to the doctor. I said, she has a weird fever and she's upset, but she doesn't have a runny nose. Like she has nothing else, but this fever has been coming and going for a couple days. He said, anything else? I said, no. And then I said, oh, she and I did have a tummy bug. And he went, she has a bladder infection, a UTI. I said, what? He said, bacteria from the loose nappy got in her urethra. She definitely has an infection. Let's check. And then I had to catch we confirmed because a six month old can't tell you what's wrong. And she would not have been able to fight that bacteria herself because it's trapped in the urethra without antibiotics. So if your child has a fever that is unexplained, that does not go along with a cough or a sniffly nose or any other obvious symptoms of sickness, please get them seen because they might have a secret infection. So yeah, so you're welcome. And thank you for writing me that letter to remind me that even the normal things resonate with people. If anyone else would like to write me a letter, please write me a letter. It's the new season of telling everybody everything. Why not write me a letter? Telling everybody everything at gmail.com. Please look after each other. I hope you're doing very well. It's getting cold out. Some people get sad when that happens. My recommendation as someone who's happy all the time is get a sad lamp. Those work for some of my friends. They give you light. And uh, in the UK, I think everyone should really have one. What is it? Melatonin? I don't know what it does. It just makes you happy. You turn it on. It's not a regular lamp. It's not going to tan you. Don't worry. It's not going to be a ring light for your social media. It's like a special kind of happy light. So I think that you need that as the cold months draw in. I'll see you soon. 